0: Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. It's March 2022 and I'm Sophia Davis and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Tzu-Yi Fang and Dr. Ilan Serna researchers from Beijing Normal University in China and Columbia University in the United States. They'll be talking about work they've done recently on global estimates of violence against children with disabilities, and their new paper on that is published online this month. And if we start from the beginning, so your paper is about violence against children with disabilities, but to put this all in perspective, could you give me an idea, first of all, about how widespread violence against all children in general is?
1: Yes. So, a systematic review published in 2016 showed that each year about 1 billion children between 2 to 17 years old experienced violence. However, the true global prevalence of violence against all children can be underestimated for various reasons. So, violence against children is difficult to measure. There is no internationally agreed gold standard on measuring this issue. There are also challenges of collecting accurate data. For example, data collected within the public sector underrepresented the true prevalence because not all children experiencing violence are referred to social services. And the reliability of child self-report can also be of concern because children may forget these experiences as their protective response to traumatic events. They may feel embarrassed or face stigma in disclosing or misunderstand the concept of what is violence. And a study showed that less than 25% of children who experienced violence would seek for formal help. And caregiver report is not entirely reliable either, especially when their children have difficulties in telling parents about violence. And adult perpetrators may also be less likely to disclose for fear of Legal and social consequences. There can also be other challenges, including ethical considerations of trauma related research and the lack of epidemiological studies providing representative data on multiple types of violence, especially in low and middle income countries. Wow. So, even that 1
0: billion figure, which is shocking in itself, it, it seems as though that could be just a huge underestimation for all of those different reasons. So then, if we think about specifically children with disabilities, how many children is that globally? How many children with disabilities are is there thought to be globally? And why why would it be particularly important to think about the violence that these children are subjected to?
2: Yes, um, thank you, Sophia. This also is an underestimate, as Sui mentioned, um, but we believe that it's, That 291.2 million children globally have epilepsy, intellectual disabilities, vision impairment, or hearing loss, which is about 11.2% of the child and adolescent population globally. And importantly as well, 94.5% of them live in lower-middle-income countries. So that's to say it's a a very large segment of the world's children who, who have disabilities. And in terms of violence that these children experience, it's, it's important because, first of all, violence against any population is, a, from a public health standpoint, is, is important. It increases mortality and morbidity, leads to poor mental health and other negative health outcomes. We also see intergenerational cycles of violence where approximately one in six go on to perpetrate violence in adulthood who have experienced violence in childhood. And on a society level, it has a tremendous effect on hindering development if large swaths of the population experience these these negative outcomes from violence. So it burdens our health system as well. It's, It's quite expensive to treat injuries and other health consequences. And you will see these sort of ramifications in education and other aspects of development that also hinder our growth as well and specifically going back to violence against children with disabilities, it's also a social justice issue. I mean, we're speaking about a group that has vulnerabilities because of their age, but is also largely marginalized in society because of their disability status. And if they're experiencing disproportionate levels of violence, better understanding and preventing that violence would therefore lead to greater equity overall. Absolutely.
0: And you mentioned that figure of how many children are thought to have those particular types of disabilities that you mentioned. And in your study, you considered also a particular range of disabilities. Could you just explain to us what those types of disabilities are and why you focused on those?
2: We used a very ample definition um, that was concurrent with sort of global standards around what disabilities could be and so it was a wide range i mean it was basically any possible categorization that exists in the global standards we used in in allowing potential studies to come into this systematic review
1: Yes, we, we didn't really pose any restrictions on disability types. So it basically encompassed any impairments, disorders, or limitations as defined by the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and the International Classification of Functioning, Disability, and Health. So, well, and we categorized them into... Five categories, including physical limitation, mental disorder, cognitive disabilities, sensory impairments, and other chronic diseases. So then I'm just starting off with a
0: lot of definitions. It's,
1: I like to think of how
0: we understand really what was, we're looking at in, the, in your study. So when we think of violence, the other key aspect of your study sometimes the assumption could be that it just means physical violence but I know that actually that usually encompasses many kinds of violence and I know in your study you looked at various types could you tell us a little bit about those types and and the reasoning behind including them all
1: Yes. So there is, again, an absence of internationally recognized best practice for defining violence against children. So different countries and communities have different cultural norms around what constitutes violence against children. And we decided to use the standardized global guidance, applying the typologies used in UNICEF's Hidden in Plain Sight report, which shed light upon the global prevalence of different forms of violence against children, mainly using information from the international surveys. So we use those typologies to operationalize our definition of violence. So we see violence against children as any act that results in harm or the potential for harm to a child. It can take various forms, happen anywhere, and be perpetrated by anyone, such as caregivers, peers, and intimate partners. And the four most commonly recognized types of violence are physical, sexual, and emotional violence, such as verbal abuse, threatening, and witnessing domestic violence. And the last one is neglect. As then said, all these forms of violence have a range of profound and negative impacts at the individual and societal levels. We abided by a broader definition of violence, so we could capture more ways in which children with disabilities experience violence that can have just as bad, if not worse, effects on them. And when it comes to violence, as you mentioned, People often think about physical violence, so we also want to take this opportunity to highlight the fact that some forms of violence, such as sexual violence, are much less documented than others. And those events are largely hidden. The child victims remain unheard, which delays actions to combat those issues. So then,
0: now that we have all those definitions straight, how did you go about collecting? data on all of this, all of these types of violence against children with all of these types of disabilities um, around the world? How did you go about collectively analyzing all of this data?
2: Absolutely. So we followed Cochrane guidelines um, and first conducting the systematic review and search for studies that broadly fit these these standardized criteria, but also built upon the former global review on violence against children with disabilities from 2010. Our our review added three Chinese language regional databases as well, so that we were scanning articles in English and Chinese, and we had people who were fluent in both on our team, and we searched for observational studies on violence against children age 0 to 18 but put no restriction on disability types or area of the world. So it was very broad in that way. And as you mentioned, we had these four categorizations of types of violence that we were looking at for physical, emotional, sexual, or neglect, and we examined perpetrators within each. We then extracted key information from each study, and all study estimates are prevalence ratios, um, or, or the raw data so that we could calculate prevalence ratios. And we treated the data as correlated when we had multiple estimates from the same study so that we could extract everything and all information possible. And so lastly, we we synthesized these prevalence and odd ratios separately, created models for each violence type, disability, and perpetrator, and tested for a variety of different aspects across national income levels, regions, and other study characteristics.
0: With all of this sophisticated analysis, I know this, as you mentioned, this study is in some ways an update to the 2010 data. What was the level of violence that you did find overall? And how does that compare to what was already seen and known about already over a decade ago?
1: Yes, um, a systematic review and meta-analysis conducted in 2010 and published by The Lancet in 2012 provided us with the baseline for the level of violence experienced by children with disabilities. They found that around 27% of children with disabilities had experience of violence and they were more than three times more likely to become victims of violence than their non-disabled peers. Since then, there has been a substantial increase in the number of relevant studies, which points to the need for updated global estimates. So our study was built and expanded upon the 2010 review. So this time we found that overall 31.7% of children with disabilities were victims of violence and their odds of experiencing violence were about two times higher than children without disabilities. So compared to what was seen a decade ago, We found a slightly higher prevalence but lower odds ratio, which is expected given the slight variation in estimates among studies. And our study also employed a broader range of violence and disabilities. But what is more important is that these numbers have relatively stayed the same. One third of children with disabilities are victims of violence, with over double the odds as children without disabilities. And that speaks to the need for renewed attention to this severe global health issue. Exactly. And that's why I think your study is so important, because
0: those numbers are just so so shocking. A third of children and over double the odds of their non-disabled peers. It's the, the thought that that hasn't changed at all in the last decade is what makes your study so important, I think. So then you covered, as you said, a wide range of countries in your study. Can you give us a sense of the geographical spread that you were able to include in terms of world regions and income levels? And how did your findings differ around these different areas of the world?
1: Sure. So by conducting an extensive search, we included 35 studies from the Americas, 34 from Europe, 25 from the Western Pacific, two from Africa, and two from the Eastern Mediterranean. And in terms of income levels, 75 out of the 98 studies that we identified were undertaken in high income countries. Twenty-one studies were from upper-middle-income countries and two from low-income countries. We found that generally, children with disabilities living in low- and middle-income countries were more vulnerable to violence. For example, the prevalence tended to increase in low-income countries, which may be due to a lack of social services or enforcement of legal frameworks to protect children from violence. And we also found that violence varied by region, for example, the Western Pacific had higher odds than Europe, which may be because of social stigma or discrimination. Although we now have more than 20% of studies outside high-income countries, which is an important advance compared to the 2010 review, these studies were in fact conducted in only seven low and low and middle income countries. Also we did not identify studies from lower middle income countries and certain regions like Southeast Asia and Central Asia. so there is still a need for better geographical coverage of research. Right There's a need to find out what exactly is
0: going on in some areas of the world. If we come back then to the issue of the different types of violence that we talked about before, what did you find about how, how common those types are and, and how that's varying?
2: So, so yes, I mean, looking at uh, specific violence and perpetrator types, um, we found that pure bullying was the most common form of violence at approximately 38% of, of violence cases. That would be followed by 36% of um, emotional violence is the next second most common, um, which, to reiterate, mostly or mainly constitutes psychological and verbal abuse. And then the third would be physical violence at 32 percent. And you know, phrasing that sort of a different way and looking at it a different way with odds ratios, uh, that would estimate different kinds of violence when comparing children with disabilities to their non-disabled peers. So, If we look at odds ratios, we then see children with disabilities experience 2.32 times more neglect than their non-disabled peers, and although evidence was limited, adolescents among the the older children with disabilities um, in intimate partnerships experience over four times as much violence, which is, is quite a high number. Third, Emotional and sexual violence were roughly equivalent at 2.19 times more common among children with disabilities. And so all elevated, but slightly different depending on who the comparison group is and and what type of violence we're looking at.
0: Hmm. What's so useful about this fine-grained analysis, I think, is that it, it helps to inform what to do about all of this. What kind of attention is required what kind of interventions might be required so i mean this is clearly a huge global issue how do you think your findings can help inform efforts to to address this level of violence
2: absolutely there's there's many lessons that can be learned first i think that over as we've already said that over 10 years later from the first global review on this issue that we still haven't seen a large reduction in violence against children with, with disabilities. And and that speaks to the need for renewed investment, particularly among low- and middle-income countries where the majority of these children with disabilities reside. We acknowledge that this is challenging, uh, given the multiple competing priorities and, and limited resources. However... Government and decision makers have an imperative to ensure that social spending keeps pace with growth in other areas of budget allocation and and that funding is expressly earmarked for violence prevention with children with disabilities. and in addition, that these legal frameworks are updated when appropriated and implemented fully. I think this the second is that, in this time, in these last 10 years, there's been a tremendous growth in evidence-based frameworks such as INSPIRE that can and should be used in, in training providers to improve care and detection of violence within this population. And we'd like to, I mean, our group, we, we strongly believe in a holistic and multidisciplinary care team approach to, to you know, targeting violence in this regard. And last, I would say that our findings also indicate that violence experienced by these children likely has multiple uh, causal pathways. So for instance, if we think about the root cause of violence from intimate partners, where you had that stark figure of four times higher odds, that might be an exploitation of vulnerability within these relationships for for these children in, in, in violence. Whereas if we're speaking about neglect from parents, that might be a combination of poverty, stress, need to develop skills in, in child rearing in the population. And so we need sort of a, a multi-pronged approach to deal with the multiple causal pathways, which means that we need to target school-based interventions to change social norms and show procedures exist for children from bullying, to strengthen legal protections, provide training to providers on how to recognize intimate partner violence within adolescents to bolster parenting programs that can be scaled up and adapted in, in different contexts. And we need to do all of it in order to, to end violence against children with disabilities.
0: Finally, your study finishes the data that you collected, at least. It finishes in the middle of 2020, and we all know what's happened since then. So it doesn't really connect, uh, can capture that much of the changes that might have happened during the coronavirus pandemic. I know this might be just speculation, but what is your sense of how things might have changed during the pandemic for children with disabilities and how, how should we be approaching
1: that? Um, So, although our understanding of the impact of COVID-19 is still at early stages, evidence has been emerging. It shows that the high levels of stress and anxiety caused by isolation, loss of income, overcrowding, and fear are increasing the likelihood of children's exposure to violence. So, children may experience more violence in their homes as a result of school closures when family members are perpetrators. While online communities have been promoting social interactions for children, they may also heighten the risk of non contact violence, such as cyberbullying and sexual exploitation. And children with disabilities are at a further disadvantage. Their higher levels of poverty, lack of access to health care and services, social isolation, and inability to seek help are likely to be aggravated during COVID-19, which put them at an even higher risk of all forms of violence. So while we're waiting for more evidence on the impact of COVID-19 on violence against children, we should at the same time do what we can to protect children from violence. For example, children with disabilities need to be engaged when creating COVID and post-COVID responses. More resources, including financial support, needs to be provided to families of children with disabilities to increase their access to health care during the pandemic. And parenting support materials should also be more inclusive and reflect the unique challenges that caregivers of children with disabilities face. Child-friendly reporting mechanisms and community-based safeguarding guidelines need also to be re-established and adapted to COVID situation. And remote supports such as helplines and smartphone apps have been made available to enable um, reporting of violence in the general population. This, however, can be complicated for children with disabilities, especially those with severe impairments and this highlights the need for remote support mechanisms to be adapted for this population and potentially involve multidisciplinary services providers to address the complex needs and exacerbated vulnerabilities of children with disabilities. And last but not least, advanced technology should also be applied to ensure children's online safety. So many excellent ideas from both of you about all the
0: kinds of interventions and the kind of approaches that should be needed. And I think your paper provides the the data to show why why all of these approaches are so important at the moment. So I'm also curious, I know that we're having this conversation right now from around the world. I'm in the UK, Ilan is in the USA, Suyi is in China. How did you, and and your research, obviously I wasn't involved in your research, but your research team is based all around the world. How, How do you approach doing the research and the writing when you're spread all around the world? I suppose, yeah, I'm just curious about that.
1: Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm really grateful that we are able to work on this study together, although we are located at different locations across multiple time zones. I think what helped us a lot was the great interest in the, and the great commitment from our team. And we were able to communicate efficiently through emails and every team members respond rapidly um, during the communications, so what we do is just to make to agree on a a timeline at the initial stage, and then we did a very good job following the timeline and uh, and the communication.
2: Yeah, I, I would say it would also just a lot of either late nights or early mornings trying to find that that overlap and finding alternative ways in real time to sort of update each other if we need and and to find each other when we could in between it all.
1: Hmm.
0: And I know one of you is on an early morning and one of you is on a late night now. So I'm really appreciative of that, that you joined me. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about about your paper or what you see as a really important message to, to take home from it?
2: Certainly, I'm, I can provide a, a bit of closing and sort of to recap on what we've talked about, but that violence against children with disabilities, it's a prominent global issue and that's what we found in, in our study. It is something that requires a multi-pronged and renewed investment, that 10 years after the last comprehensive systematic review on the issue, the estimates globally have, have largely not changed. And in that time, we've seen a growth in research on the topic, actually. There's been numerous new evidence-based interventions that can be brought to scale and adapted to different contexts. So much more needs to be done, but we also need to recognize that a nuanced approach is needed moving forward, that we need to institute sanctions when merited, but also build competencies in providers, train teachers on working with this population sure caregivers have sufficient support and knowledge and skills so th- so this sort of comprehensive scatter- strategy is is what we need and, and then that will be able to address the many forms of violence against children with disabilities
0: yeah thank you again for sending the paper to us as i've said many times it's such such important work so i'm was very happy to read through the paper and that we'll get to publish it which we will do this month and so glad that you could both talk to me a little bit more about your research
1: thank you, thank you so much for taking so much time to hand our paper, thank you really, thanks a million
2: it's a pleasure yes, agreed, thank you very much
0: you can read Tsuyi and Ilan's research online now at thelancet.com thank you again to you both for talking with me and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With Remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation with the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health wherever you usually get your podcasts.